The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Hey there, and welcome to Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Yes, this is our collector's item first issue, polybagged and chromium inked, so be sure to download 10 copies and let them appreciate in value over the life of the podcast. And if you want to get your copy of the podcast signed, we'll be appearing at Captain Comics House of Funny Books, January 29th. So get in line now, or you just might miss your opportunity. But enough of that silliness. Who am I, ambush bug? Slapstick? No. I'm your host who's the most verbose, Adam. I am the comic geek that flaps in the night. I am the nerd that has all of his comics alphabetized. I am Michael Kennedy. And here we are. We are so excited. We've been looking forward to this day. We know you have too. Uh, Just a reminder, if you haven't already checked out our issue zero, where we revealed our comic book fanboy origins, go into the Retro Network podcast feed and find it. There are a ton of fun memories about how we discovered superheroes and comics. It's all waiting for you there. But today, we officially launch a Dynamite podcast experience for all you comic book lovers out there. Did you collect X-Men books in the 90s? Awesome! Did you just start reading comics after seeing Spider-Man Far From Home? Gotta start somewhere. Let us teach you, young one. Have you become a superhero cosplayer at conventions? We salute you! Comics fandom takes many forms, and we hope to celebrate it all throughout the course of the podcast. So what is the mission statement of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, if we have such a thing? It is to re-examine comic book collecting in the 1990s as presented through the pages of Wizard Magazine, one issue at a time in chronological publishing order. We're going to get nostalgic about our own experiences reading and loving comics, discover hidden gems of the genre that we missed, and have a ton of fun inspired by the comic book magazine that defined the hobby for many who grew up in that decade where DC killed Superman, Spider-Man had too many clones, Valiant launched Shadow Man, and Wildcats roamed. I'm rhyming like the demon Etrigan over here. You know, uh... When we announced the podcast online, there was an instant buzz on social media. We're very grateful for that. We managed to connect with a lot of awesome folks, specifically 90s kids who loved reading Wizard, and fan letters were a major part of comics and a place for fans to playfully debate each other in the pages of Wizard. So to kick off the show, we're jumping into our first segment as we open up Willie Lumpkin's Mailbag. All right, so here are what you guys had to say about Wizard Magazine. At Retro Robot Zero One, aka Retro Robot Review, I was a fan of the Custom Toys and Price Guide, but my favorite was when they would have the Dreamcast for superhero movies. At Haunted Drive-In says the Scavenger Hunt contest, the custom action figure photos, the sarcastic replies to letter writers, the extreme 90s bad girl ads, the word bubble jokes. I have a dozen issues and I still read them. Rizzard was an essential part of my adolescent experience. 
at Regal Fan, aka Jody Yerden of the Case in Point podcast. I once submitted a, let's say, less than dressed photo of myself for the wizard scavenger hunt, hoping to impress them enough for a prize. It worked! I just covered the more intimate parts with an open issue of Wizard. All for second prize of five signed comics, the biggest being a signed Duncan Rollo issue of M-Rex. At least, my story is good. (laughs) (laughs) At Money 0 writes, Loved getting those fold-out posters. When I saw that tweet, I remembered the fold-out posters. Oh my god, I remember those. I forgot all about those. Yeah, every issue. And a lot of times, it would either be related to the cover or something different altogether so very cool all right at crooked ninja aka crooked ninja turtle wizard was my constant companion in grade school there was always an issue in my bag at all times and i would read and reread each issue without exception at steven staples 81 of hot and nerdy i was one of those kids that ran to the comic store on the first of every month just to get the new issue. Wizard Magazine got me through some tough times. I'll never forget its power. And in pre-internet era, it was so comforting to know that there were other people out there, a group of funny and cool adults that shared my niche interests. I still reread old issues. It's comfort food. Thanks, everybody, for reaching out. We actually look forward to having some of you on the show in the future as guests to share your experiences in person with our listeners. I know several of you have expressed an interest, and it's just awesome that we can have this communication even before the show's fully in swing, and I think that speaks to the power of of wizard and what it meant to so many people now before we continue on with the bulk of the show it's time to let you know that wizards the podcast guide to comics is sponsored this week by minifiguresmarket.com your source for custom lego minifigures and boy is their selection tailor-made for comic book fans are you old school how about a batman 66 eight-piece set of all the heroes and villains from the campy classic adam west tv show do people say you look like tony stark then pick up the iron man armory eight-piece set featuring Shellhead's mechanical threads. More of an Alan Moore fan? The Watchmen six-piece set will deconstruct the genre of Lego minifigures and elevate the art form. Of course, at minifiguresmarket.com you can also order single figures of anti-hero loners like Spawn, Venom, and Wolverine. But it's not just the comics-based figures you'll find. They also have characters from movies, TV, even classic 80s toy lines are available to order. And I'll tell you, I sent a He-Man and Skeletor two-pack to my Masters of the Universe-loving cut and he was over the Eternian moon. Yes, minifiguresmarket.com gives you the best gifts for the geek in your life. At the end of the show, we'll reveal how you can win a set of minifigures just for helping Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, to grow. And now, back to the show. All right, and since our show is a bit of a nostalgia trip by design, we decided that it would be helpful to set the scene each episode with a quick history lesson. And so we bring you... The Wave Riders Wayback Machine. So, since we're starting with September of 1991, I'm going to start with music because when I started researching this and looking into it, I was really pretty shocked at some of the, the things that popped up. And on August 27th, Pearl Jam dropped the album 10, which is a huge album for the early 90s. On September 10th, Nirvana dropped the song Smells Like Teen Spirit. Wow. Yeah, back to back. Pearl Jam and Nirvana. September 17th, 
Guns N' Roses released another huge album for that time period, which is Use Your Illusion. I saw Axl Rose and Guns N' Roses in concert maybe about a decade ago. Oh, and wow. Yeah, I saw them at Madison Square Garden. It was pretty amazing. Now, when it comes to movies, the year of 91 had a lot of really cool things. September wasn't really the biggest for huge releases. The biggest movie that I think was significant was Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. Oh, I literally just watched that yesterday. Did you really? <laughs> On VHS, yes, because I had never seen it, and I just uh, bought some from a friend of mine, Chad, over at Horror Movie Barbecue, and I bought his collection of Nightmare on Elm Street VHS tapes, and I was like, I've never seen Freddy's Dead, I've seen everything else, so that's awesome. That's pretty funny. That dropped on September 15th in 91. Prior to that, Terminator 2 Judgment Day came out in July, and right after that, like in October, the biggest movies there was... A movie that I used to love as a kid was House Party 2. <laughs> <laughs> you know, fun fact, the 3D glasses that you got when you went to see Freddy's Dead in the theater, I have a pair, and on the inside of one of the arms is printed House Party 2. To promote that movie? Yeah. <laughs> that was just kind of an interesting take on what movies came out in that time. And now with television programs... So I found a list that was the top rated shows of 1991. Okay. Believe it or not, the number one ranked show was 60 Minutes. What? Yeah. I, I for sure thought it was going to be like Beverly Hills 90210. And the tie for number 30 is pretty funny. In the Heat of the Night and the Golden Girls. <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm sad that the Golden Girls had slipped so far by then. Yeah, isn't that pretty weird? So and the reason we wanted to do this is we want to set the scene because comic books are so often a reflection of pop culture and what's going on in the world at the time. And so a lot of times those references work their way in, especially into a pop culture magazine, which is what Wizard became. But speaking of Wizard, wanted to give you a little bit of a history. For those of you who might be checking out the podcast You've maybe heard of Wizard, but you weren't a reader back in the day. What was it all about? Even if you were a reader here and there or a devoted reader, do you know the origins of Wizard magazine? So just a, a quick history. Garib Seamus is the editor-in-chief, was the man behind the magazine who put it all together. And his story is pretty interesting. Uh, this is from a 2001 interview with Comic Book Resource Online. He was kind of reflecting back after 10 years. But he mentions that I started... I started out collecting sports cards and comics as a kid. It became such a big hobby that my family opened a store and I was 14 or 15 years old. I used to work there. It's where I got my start, so to speak. My mom runs the store. And so I just thought that was really fascinating. Can you imagine having whatever your giant hobby is that then your parents are like, you know, we're spending all this money. We might as well make some money on it. We'll just buy the stock and you can have whatever you want. I couldn't even imagine that. Like, I'm trying to wrap my head around that. That's a pretty unprecedented kind of thing if you look at it, you know? Yeah, it really is. And so, with that support from his parents, he worked there. Over time, he started writing a newsletter that would go to basically just anybody that came into the store. They could grab a copy. And it was just like the wizard of comics and cards. And then, a couple of years into doing that, after getting various people that worked at the store or came into the store to write for the newsletter, they said, you know, what if we turn this into a magazine? And what if we actually tried to sell it to different retailers so other stores would carry it? And so they started saying, 
the main factor would have to be a price guide. So then they started doing all their research, putting a price guide together. They created their little wizard ash can edition. It was just a real tidy 500 print run that they sent to other stores around the country. Got people excited about it. And then they basically said, let's make it even bigger. They got a good response. And so the whole idea behind it was Garib Seamus said, I want to have a magazine that has everything. It has interviews. It has a price guide. It has tips on collecting. It has ideas for you know what's the next big thing so on and so forth and so they did that and what i find fascinating about it is the first issue really did not sell well and it wasn't until issue 10 and when we get down the road we'll talk in greater detail as to why that particular issue sold so well but they were basically struggling for nine issues and not making money and just in the hole. And they kept at it because they were all just passionate comic book collectors and fans. And this is what's interesting, though, just to give you a perspective of where Wizard went, because here we're talking about it launched in 1991. This is 10 years later, 2001, and it lasted beyond that as well. But this is what Garib Seamus attributed his success to. He said, we never lost sight of our initial vision. There may be those who disagree with that, but we're still not afraid to be funny or to speak our mind or what have you. When you look at the comic business as it's changed so much over the years, at the end of the day, Wizard sells better than any single comic book in print today. We sell more copies of Wizard than Marvel sells of the X-Men or Ultimate Spider-Man. And so the actual figure that CBR had at that point, currently Wizard Magazine boasts about 400,000 copies sold per month in 30 countries and five languages, which is nuts. What do you think? about the magazine about comics sells more than the comics themselves you know what i kind of believe it and i'll tell you why how many movies do you watch the trailer never go see the movie right you know think about that i'm obsessed with movie trailers and i watch them constantly maybe one tenth of the movies that i see trailers of i go to see in the theater and that that's a good point and, and garib's final quote here what he says is we've become a staple in what people use to judge comics we still talk to our fans the way you'd want your friend to talk to you we won't recommend a book to be read unless we like it regardless of who publishes it or how many copies it sells it doesn't matter who it is we're very very true to who we are, despite how people may or may not feel about it. That's what Wizard is about. So like you're saying there, Michael, I mean, it really was. It was how you find out what is available and you pick and choose. You know, you find what works for you. And that's really what their point was, is yeah, we are the resource that you can go to. And there were many competitors that popped up around it, but none of them lasted nearly as long as Wizard. And obviously based on some of the comments that we read up top, pretty clear that it ended up meaning a lot to a lot of people. So let's get into this issue. Just give you a quick overview of what we're talking about with issue number one of Wizard. Emblazoned on the front cover, we have a Spider-Man illustration by Todd McFarlane, who in 1991 was absolutely the king of comics. The year before, they had released Spider-Man number one, and it was the biggest selling comic of all time at that point. So suddenly McFarlane name meant everything. So if you could get Todd McFarlane to draw Spider-Man on the cover of your first issue of your publication, that's gonna get people's attention for sure. Despite the fact that they've told us it didn't sell well initially, I'm sure it still got people's eyes on the shelf. Just looking at the cover, I bet you nowadays 
this thing would make some money. If, you, if someone had a really good graded copy of this book, I bet it would sell for a pretty decent amount of money because it's got to be pretty rare at this point because how many people had this cover? It was a very low run of prints and it didn't sell well. So if somebody's had this, I bet it's worth some some cash. Yeah, you know, and I just, I have a reader copy in front of me here. Beautiful to look at. So it's a very different format also than we would see. And we'll get into that as the show progresses. Just to give you an idea of how simple this first issue is, I'll actually just give you a quick rundown of the table of contents. We won't be talking about every single feature here, but just to give you an idea. First of all, writing and drawing the webhead. So an interview with cover artist Todd McFarlane. Digital color. So talking about using computers to color comic books, horror comics, then and now, picks from the wizard's hat, remembering the middleman, basically an insight into how distributors view comics, wizard's comics watch, grading your comics, comic book price guide, trading cards, toy figures guide, number one issues shipping that month, comic shipping calendar, and show and convention calendar. And that's it. So Michael, that takes us into our next segment, which is... Heroes in Motion. A lot of you people probably remember or have seen the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy. You might have even seen the 70s made-for-TV Spider-Man shows and movies. Did you know that there was plans to have another Spider-Man movie by, of all people, James Cameron? And so... On the table of contents, it actually has a little sidebar blurb where it's talking about about our cover. Spider-Man sports a wizard's costume to kick off our premiere issue. Spider-Man can be seen in four monthly titles. Plus, will be starring in his own motion picture due out in early 1992. Now, for those of you who don't know, also, a Spider-Man movie was in development as far back as 1985. And he was working on this film for such a long time that by 96, it, it basically fell apart. And there's an article from 1996 talking about the development of this idea for Spider-Man and uh, James Cameron's story arc and what he was looking to do. And it's Stan Lee talking about this detailed 50-page treatment. Stan says, I think this will be the greatest adaptation of Spider-Man that has ever been done. Jim's story is amazing. He has taken a character that everybody has known for 30 years and without making any drastic changes or doing anything that alters the basic premise of Spider-Man has come up with a story that I think is totally full of surprises. I think it will be bigger than the Terminator. Now, keep in mind, guys, at this time, as far as actual comic book movies that have been made, obviously we had the Superman film back in the late 70s, you know, then we had Batman 89 was huge, huge, huge blockbuster, and then Marvel in the cinematic realm had a Punisher movie that had been teased for a long time and never came out until it finally hit home video, and also a Captain America film that was also being touted as this amazing thing that also 
never came out, only on home video. And so it's one of those things where Marvel just, if you could get a Spider-Man movie done, could we get it done? It was going to be exciting. But they were just teasing it, teasing it, teasing it. And the original rights belong to Canon Films, if you guys know, Golan and Globus, who have given us the Chuck Norris missing in action films and <laughs> ninja movies, Ninja 3, The Domination, eventually Masters of the Universe. So, I mean, like, it was not the studio you wanted, especially when we saw what they did with Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. And eventually that company dissolved, and one of the cousins, they were two cousins that owned that company, he took the rights for a Spider-Man film with him to a company called 21st Century, and so that was where it was in development again with James Cameron eventually entering the fray, and I think it's so interesting what Stan Lee is mentioning there, this 50-page treatment. It's pretty famous online now. If you just Google James Cameron's Spider-Man scriptment is what he called it, kind of his word he made up, which is basically a storyboarded outline. They had all sorts of casting rumors. going to be Eddie Furlong because he had been in T2. At one point, they had Dr. Octopus in the film, and it was going to be Arnold. <laughs> was it really? Yeah. And they were even saying, like, Michael Bean was going to be in it. So basically, he was just going to be using all his favorite actors and bringing them back. There's actually a great podcast, if you ever want to check it out, called The Greatest Movies Never Made. Mm-hmm. They actually did, I think it was a four-part series on all the different iterations of the Spider-Man script over the years, including the original one, where Golan and Globus wanted Spider-Man to actually mutate into a spider. So, like, they didn't understand, you know, although that, you know, Spider-Man got six arms at one point. For people who don't know, a treatment for a film is normally 10 to 30. 30 pages max to have a 50 page treatment of a film which is basically a short story that would be roughly like a four and a half hour movie when you made it into a script just putting that out there (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, James Cameron, obviously, he was very passionate about this. He said he read Spider-Man comics when he was a kid. Spider-Man's the only superhero he ever cared about, and so he wanted to make this movie. But it was just, there were a a bunch of legal rights issues, which Stanley also makes mention of, you know, those 10 years on. So that's why the film never happened uh, with any of the rights holders or studios that James Cameron was working with at the time. But what I find most interesting is Stan's statement that it's it's so true to Spider-Man, which it really was not. In the actual script, Spider-Man did not appear until the end of the movie. Like, it was literally just an extended origin story that was all Peter Parker, and basically he uses his powers to be a peeping Tom on Mary Jane, you know? Like, he's cussing at people. He's The bad guy eventually ended up being a version of Electro that was basically just like a high-powered businessman. It, It really would not have borne any resemblance to what we want in the comics so I think we should be all be very grateful that we eventually did get the Sam Raimi Spider-Man which he based it on those early issues you know he loved yeah. classic Spider-Man and that's what he gave us you know barely updated. No I agree looking into this and reading about it I could see James Cameron making something that would be very impressive visually for its time but I think he would go way off the rails where even though S- Sam Raimi's kind of like a, a hard horror style 
previous to those Spider-Man movies, he kept it more grounded, especially like the first two movies, and told a real story about Spider-Man, not just explosions and superpowers all over the place. As far as Spider-Man live action, I know uh, you mentioned this, Michael, uh, on our preview episode. For me, the 70s live action Spider-Man TV movies and series, I used to watch those reruns that would play like on Sunday afternoons, and I loved them. I still love them. For me, that was like the first time I saw, wow, a man could climb on walls. And, I, you know, seven, eight, nine years old, you're seeing these things from the 70s. You're like, wow, how'd they do that? That's so cool. I can't believe it. <laughs> yeah, and I'm actually part of a Kickstarter right now where there's a guy who he got an original negative of the original pilot movie. And he is doing a full HD Blu-ray restoration. Really? Yeah. Wow. You know, I, I put in my money towards that. You know, he's been sending these updates, you know, with the comparisons. Okay, this is what it originally looked like. Now look at how well it cleans up. And it's going to be a, a while. I think it's not going to be till the end of next year we actually get it. But he's been working hard. And so that's like exciting, you know, just to be like, oh, an HD version of that. Because, you know, I just had my copies I taped off TV for years. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you rewinded the video just a hundred thousand times so that the tape burned out yeah. <laughs> how did he find a net that's I, I find that really interesting that's pretty cool well it's because those movies actually played in foreign theaters yeah so some people can say oh yeah we had a spider-man movie in 1977 didn't one of them take place like spider-man in japan or or yeah he went he went he went to china yeah he was in hong kong what was it called it, it the had a chinese funny name. web that's what it was <laughs> the chinese web ted danson has a cameo in that does he? Oh, I gotta find that thing. I gotta watch that now. <laughs> so the next movie that's mentioned is another personal favorite of mine, and I just recently bought a statue of this particular character, the Rocketeer. And this is an interview from the star of The Rocketeer, Billy Campbell. And if you guys don't know, Disney Plus has just released a Rocketeer TV show that's kind of a remake or kind of like a sequel or it basically it pays a lot of reference to this particular movie in the comic book and it's a little girl nowadays as as opposed to the movie which is a 20 something year old guy and for this movie when you saw the rocketeer the first time even though people say oh it's kind of campy and whatever it was disney but it was amazing to see this guy in a jet pack flying around fighting nazis it was the coolest thing you'd ever seen there's a couple of little excerpts In this article, there's a little quote that says, I have a few favorites. Jack Kirby was a longtime favorite of mine, and I have every commandee he ever did until he stopped. Russ Heath I always loved, which is exciting for me because I hear Heath is doing an adaptation of the screenplay. And so I... I mentioned that because of he talks about Jack Kirby, which is a pretty important character. But I'm going to go to one other quote from Billy Campbell up in the top was he's talking about uh, Jennifer Connelly, who plays the female lead. And I don't know if you know this, but in the comics, the female lead is actually Betty Page, who's like the, the like burlesque girl. And they changed the character need to make her not inappropriate for younger audiences. But he's talking about the screen test with her. And he says, when she walked in the door for the screen test, Joe and I thought, wow, she's pretty much there. Then when she walked out of makeup, having been done up like Betty, like Betty Page, both of us just hung on each other. We couldn't believe it. We knew that she was the closest thing we'd ever get to Betty, the closest person we'd ever test to Betty. 
period. I think that was kind of cool that they were they tried to find somebody as close as they could, and she was perfect. And I remembered her character very vividly in, as a child, and I thought she was a great actress in the movie, and it was a terrific role. And I could go on and on and talk about this particular movie because I love it so much, but I just wanted to cover a few key things in this article. Adam, if you want to share anything about it, by all means. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the number one thing for me is I had always heard, you know, some behind the scenes, you know, Rocketeer that uh, Billy Campbell, oh, he, he was working at a Renaissance fair and he had a beard when he came into audition. He didn't think he was going to get there all, all this kind of lore that surrounded his casting. I had no idea that he was a comic book reader and a fan. And to go that deep to know people like Russ Heath and Jack Kirby. In fact, I actually have that Rocketeer movie adaptation right in front of me here and the Russ Heath art is pretty great inside and you know the fun thing for me about the Rocketeer is that as I mentioned in our preview episode my Yoda of comic books the the man who kind of introduced me to it all was a guy nicknamed Popper and I have a distinct memory he was my friend's dad and I remember going over after school one day and walking into their entertainment room and on top of their giant wooden cabinet was just every piece of Rocketeer merchandise that had been released for the film, and then including all the original Dave Stevens comic books, and it just washed over me. I was just like, wow! Because that iconic helmet, just the whole look of the Rocketeer and Cliff Secord as a character and everything was so amazing. And I remember, you know, going to Pizza Hut and getting my collector's cup and my Rocketeer, you know, personal pan pizza and all those things. Like, So it's a very special movie to me as well. And I was always sad we didn't get a sequel. And in fact, on my other podcast, Sequel Quest, we did an episode where we all pitched our ideas for a follow-up to The Rocketeer. So if you ever want to go back and check that out, it's also here on the Retro Network. It's a good episode. You should check it out. And just one more quick fun fact. The producers who put together The Rocketeer and basically developed it with Dave Stevens as a film to then sell eventually to Disney, they're the same guys who went on to do the Flash TV series, which also was happening right at this time. So it's just, it's awesome how they were super big comic book fans and they were able to bring, you know, a couple of our favorite characters or one, you know, introduce really kind of a more obscure character in the Rocketeer to uh, a younger audience. And yeah, it didn't unfortunately do well enough at the box office to really ever warrant much beyond that initial phase of merchandising and everything else. And like you said, you just got a statue, Michael. It's by Mondo. It's a Dave Stevens actual like replica type of art, but it's like that 50 style uh, design. I'll send you a link to it. It's pretty yeah. cool. Like it's really an awesome looking statue, and I've wanted it for a while. It's really really neat statue. I got it actually on Black Friday. My local comic book store, Bailey's Comics in in Lindenhurst, New York. He had one, and he was doing a sale, and he's like, "Hey, I know you like Rocketeer. You want this?" And he gave it to me for a great price, and I was like, "I can't say no," and I had to buy it right there. That helps to know your comic book proprietor. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, let's move on to our next segment. It's Robin Todd's Hype Machine. <laughs> all right. Now, this one might be a little strange to all of you, but here's the bottom line. At this time that Wizard was launching, Rob Liefeld and Todd McFarlane 
were absolutely the hottest artists out there. And Jim Lee was on his way up, but it was Rob and Todd were established. Rob had been doing X-Force. Todd had been doing Spider-Man. And the bottom line is they themselves were always making sure that their name was in print. And Marvel had the largest market share of the comic book industry at that time. They were way outselling DC and anybody else on the independent scene. But they were doing it on the back of of Rob and Todd. So what we're going to be doing throughout the series is we are going to keep a meticulous and official count of how many times Todd McFarlane's name and Rob Liefeld's name are mentioned in each issue. So I'm going to be keeping that tally. And obviously in this case, we have Todd McFarlane on the cover. We have an exclusive interview with him about his rise to fame and really how he's maintaining uh, the, the book at this point because it had been running now his standalone Spider-Man title for about a year. And as far as Todd McFarlane's work in comics, you know, what's interesting actually is that he started with Marvel doing an epic comics. He actually had a backup feature. He wasn't even the main artist, but in a comic called Coyote. I don't even remember that. Yeah, no, very few people did, but he was kind of like, you know, experimenting with all his different layouts. You know, he didn't do the traditional panels and borders and things like that. And then he actually went on to work at DC. He did like a comic called The Omega Men. He did some work on the Batman comics. I was actually just reading a collected edition on Comicsology of Batman Year Two, and he came in to replace the original artist and ended up doing like the remaining issues in that particular series. So he actually was touching Batman before he was ever, you know, getting a chance to draw Spider-Man. But that was really where he found his success. And there's another magazine called Comics Interview Magazine that I have here, issue number 81. So this was an interview he did just before the book was about to launch. So this was kind of like getting everybody excited about what was to come. And he was being interviewed by Jim Salakrep, who, if anybody knows him, he was an editor at Marvel. So they were both a little bit more laid back. And I found this fascinating because Jim Salakrep says, and we're calling this book Legends of the Arachnid, Todd. Yeah, and we're going to do a protective cover, laughter, and we're going to give our reason why. Because it sells more copies. Ha 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 Jim. And there will be 64 different editions, Todd. We could possibly top the 30 million mark on this book. We'll suck everybody into buying 64 copies each, you know? Could work. Even if they did have to stop buying every other book for the month, Jim. The people reading this will think you're the most crass and cynical guy in the world. You'll have to bear your artistic soul for them, Todd. He's like, oh, no, 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 no. I just have to give the critics a couple more things to take jabs at before. The funny thing is, they were joking, and that's exactly what happened. It doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, I mean, like, that was kind of a new thing at the time, and I think most people in the industry thought it was ridiculous to even consider, oh, yeah, yeah, you just release a bunch of different versions of the book and everybody's gonna buy it, but with Todd McFarlane's name on it, and just as we round out the official count here, then, for Rob and Todd's Hype Machine, we have Rob Liefeld with six mentions and Todd McFarlane with eight. Hmm. And now, let's jump into our next segment, Punisher's Price Guide. (laughs) 
All right, so here's the thing. We have the Punisher's Price Guide here. The purpose of this segment is to talk a little bit about how comics are able to actually grow in value or otherwise, and what the market was like at the time that these books were being released. Because like we say, primarily, Wizard was being released as a price guide. And actually, in that interview with Garib Seamus, he claims that everybody was reading it. Still, the price guide was the most popular feature in the book. I was like, I don't know about that, because I feel like everybody... I talked to really just liked all the other cool jokes and silly things in there. But for this segment, the way it's going to work is we actually are going to have three designations. First will be a fire star. So that's one that has really gone up in value. The second will be a fire storm. Basically, it went up in value, but it's not burning up the chart. It's a little bit more than it was selling for back in the day. And the final will be burnout. So if it actually has gone down in value and it is worth nothing in comparison to how it was listed in the price guide, it will be a burnout. And that's going to be pulled from the most recent sold eBay auctions. It will not include CGC graded copies. This is just what is a loose copy of the comic selling for now. And so with that, given that we have a Todd McFarlane cover on this issue, we are going to be looking at the standard Spider-Man number one black cover from 19 As we mentioned in that article, Todd and Jim were making all sorts of jokes about all the different covers that they were going to release. But here is just a listing of all the covers that were released. So you had your standard black cover. You had black bagged. You had a green cover. You had a green with the UPC, the green bagged, green and UPC bagged, platinum, second print with gold, and a gold UPC. The platinum edition, by the way, was the one that was released just direct to retailers, so to comic book store owners, for helping make it the highest selling comic book in history at that time. And so, what was it selling for just a year later? That standard black cover was $5. (laughs) Why? Because there were so many other rare variant versions everybody wanted to buy. But... You want to take a guess now, Michael. This iconic comic book has sold so many copies in its day. What is it currently selling for in 2020? Uh, I'm going to take a guess. I didn't look, but I'm 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 going to venture a guess. I'm going to say a buck ninety nine. It's currently selling for two dollars. Wow! Looking at these auctions on eBay, that where they actually sold. <laughs> yeah, this so a single issue sold for two dollars. A whole lot of eight issues, including the green. Cover and all this other stuff, just multiple copies, because that's what people were doing back in the day. Oh, I'll grab a bunch, it'll be worth so much. Sold for $16, so $2 an issue. If you want an original, there you go. The, the, the thing about the 90s, especially with Marvel, sparked the variant cover nowadays like x-men is notorious for this right now when they did a, a run last year house of x powers of x that jonathan hickman just did to like reboot the x-men each issue for this 12 issue story had 10 variant covers wow i i'll admit there were certain issues that i thought the cover was so cool that i bought two like one variant and one like the standard cover but as you can see by looking at this this was a very famous 
comic, and this is a very famous cover that you said would see on T-shirts, it'd be on posters, it'd be everywhere. The primary book, the base book, is worth two bucks. Twenty some odd years later, because they mass produced it so much, it's not as valuable as it probably could have been. Right. I mean, even with the wave of nostalgia and everything for the nineties, yeah. I don't know that it's really going to go up too far in value. So, sorry, Spider-Man number one, but you are a burnout. <laughs> So our next segment is Robin's Reading Rainbow. And in this particular Reading Rainbow, we chose Detective Comics Annual Number 4 from 1991. It takes place in then, not too distant future, and Bruce Wayne gets mortally wounded to the point where he is almost dead. And Tim Drake, who is the then Robin, but a little bit older than he is at the time of the 90s, he decides that he'll carry the mantle to take down Talia al Ghul and defend Gotham City. And he ultimately gets killed as Batman in this book in basically one night well in one page Let, let's get into this michael because when we were talking about what issue we wanted to review from this era that we had not read we were reading through the picks from the wizard's hat section and the issue that instantly jumped out at both of us list detective comics annual number four it says your armageddon 2001 builds towards its conclusion as the new dark knight parentheses tim drake is killed in the line of duty and we're like huh tim drake became batman and we didn't know about this story neither of us had read it and i just i think it's so funny just like you said there because that was that was the draw for us right and i think it's also worth noting again that Armageddon 2001, this was a huge crossover event for DC. This is not something that I read back in the day at all. Me neither. The only way I knew about it were the DC Cosmic cards, the trading cards. I have the three-card explanation of what it was here. Also, I'll just read the first one for to catch everybody up. It says, In the world of 2030, monarch is another word for menace. Though Earth's future seems bright and wonderful and filled with technological advances undreamed of by modern man, the citizens of 2030 pay a terrible price for their utopia. Their lives are ruled by the all-seeing, all-knowing tyrant called monarch, According According to legend, this depraved despot was once one of Earth's heroes. No one was sure exactly which one, by the end of the new century's first decade, turned evil, slaying all of Earth's superpower champions and declaring himself ruler. So basically what this was about was there was a hero named Wave Rider, for whom our Wave Rider's Wayback Machine segment is named, and he traveled the time stream, right? He would monitor things. So his whole deal was he was going to go find out who was the hero that became the monarch and so what did you think initially michael as you started reading this it felt very 90s for, <laughs> to start it was kind of interesting how the first couple of panels the very last 
panels of the book bookend each other, which is kind of cool. And I thought that was an interesting idea. I loved the way that they drew the Batman in the very first panel. But to me, it feels like a very throwaway type of a story. If you're looking at the first page, he basically does a Mortal Kombat ripping the heart of Batman right out of his chest. And it foreshadows the gunshot wound that Tim Drake takes in the second page of him being Batman. And I'm going to disagree with you here, Michael, only because you say that that's a throwaway story. To me, I feel like that's always the appeal of an Andy is that they're self-contained for the most part. So I love the idea of just this one-off story that is really not what's going to happen. But for me, that was a big selling point when I would buy an annual because usually it would be like, oh yeah, you know, this is either going to tie up a loose end from some story that had a dangling plot thread that they never answered, or it's at least just going to be a cool story that's a one and done. See, for me, I like an annual that ties up some loose ends or sparks a new new story arc. If it's kind of a one and done kind of a thing, even though I do love Elseworld stories and we'll get into that as we go along, but I just feel like this was kind of a throwaway story. I would have liked it to have seen Tim Drake go a little further because he's fighting some no-name thugs and gets shot in the back so quickly that you're like, how could somebody trained by Batman get killed that quickly, that easily? It didn't feel natural to the character. And knowing Tim Drake as being touted as the smartest Robin, he probably would have anticipated. He's not the fastest, he's not the strongest, he's not the best fighter, but he's by far the smartest, and he would have assessed the area before he would have gotten shot in the back and gotten killed. Yeah, I mean, that was totally frustrating, because like we said, that was why we wanted to read this. Tim Drake becomes Batman? Not really. Batman is just broken, and he's in a bad mental state. He's like, oh, I give up, I can't be Batman anymore. So he just says, well, I'll do it takes the costume and goes out there and gets shot immediately it was so lame i'm like oh come on you couldn't give him like one success and then he gets shot it was super disappointing in that way the one thing i found great though that i was really excited about because this is something if anybody watched the crisis on infinite earth cw i've been watching it and so we had kevin conroy gets to finally play a live action bruce wayne and he comes down in what this exoskeleton armor he has to wear now because he's crippled and broken which we also saw if anybody's a fan of kingdom come and alex ross that's how he depicted the look of bruce wayne all those years later he again had all this braces and supports because he had pushed his body to the limit and couldn't do it anymore and this, so this predates kingdom come yeah and, and seeing batman had to create an under armor like it was an exoskeleton but then he put his costume over it something like a mech like a, like a yeah. mech yeah and the look of the exoskeleton before he puts on the bat suit with the giant cod piece and the way it just looks it looks kind of cheesy but the fact that they thought to when they put him back in the bat suit you can see the outline of the exoskeleton underneath the bat suit right the boots kind of sit a little bit bigger because of the exoskeleton underneath. Even the cowl sits a little bit wider on his head. It's kind of interesting that they thought to add that stuff in. That I thought was really interesting about this particular comic and the, and the art in particular is how they showcased the, the system that he had underneath him so that he could actually go out and fight. So I, I think the draw for us, they really let us down with Tim Drake as Batman, but not really. Although I, the last thing I'll say about that is I thought it was really cool 
that they did draw Tim Drake just a little bit taller. So he's still got his Robin costume on, but you can just tell, you know, he's older. And I had never really paid that close attention to the fact that, yeah, they do draw him like a kid, rounded and kind of, you know, cherub-like, and he is, you know, smaller proportions, you know, whereas in this case, he is more angular and more filled out. So I thought that was pretty cool. So I, again, I sounds like you didn't get a kick out of it. I really did enjoy this particular story, especially if it's going to involve Talia al Ghul and the Lazarus Pit, you know, go back to that. Why not? Up until the point where they gunned down Tim Drake in 10 seconds, I did too like the idea of seeing him as an older Robin, and it reminded me more of like an Earth 2 version of Dick Grayson as an adult Robin. And it looked very reminiscent of that, almost as if it was paying homage to that kind of a Robin, which was pretty cool. And then, like, his decision to wear the Batsuit was important. We've seen stories where Dick becomes Batman. We've seen stories where Damian Wayne becomes Batman. We've even seen some where, where Tim Drake comes Batman, but whenever Tim becomes Batman, it always ends poorly for him. <laughs> Poor guy. It's just, all right, this kid doesn't get the do. And, and pe- people would argue that he's the closest to Bruce Wayne in the sense that he's the most broken, I would say, other than maybe Jason Todd, who's a different story altogether. And he's also the most intelligent, like Bruce Wayne. And so I would like to see him like really fulfill that destiny at some point. Speaking of trading cards, you know, we use that as the point of reference for our Armageddon 2001 knowledge. Now it's time to move into our next segment, Gambit's Deck of Cards. This is huge for us, I think, in in our era of collecting. And the idea of superhero trading cards was fairly new, and it really exploded in 1990 with the release of the Marvel Universe Series 1 trading cards. For me, this was huge because I remember going to my buddy Eric's house, and he had this pack of cards that had Spider-Man on the front. And I was like, wait, what is this? He's like, these are Marvel cards. I'm like, what are Marvel cards? And he's just telling me, he's like, these are comic book character trading cards. Because he was like a big sports guy. So he had all sorts of different football and basketball and baseball cards. And now he was getting into Marvel cards. I was like, where did you get these? And he's like, it's at this place called Ace of Cards. And it was like two cities over in Santa Ana. So for weeks... My goal became, Mom, we have to get to Ace of Cards. We have to get to Ace of Cards. Call Eric's mom. Get the address. You know, and she didn't. So then I looked it up in the phone book. And I'm like, I found them. We got to go there. I called them. You guys have Marvel cards, right? Yeah, we got them. Come on, Mom. They have them. And so we finally went over there. And I just, there was something, this mania that had come over me that, like, nothing mattered more than getting my hands on a couple packs of Marvel Universe cards. And I remember walking in that store and everything else was sports cards everything and I had zero interest and then in the glass case was this box and it had Spider-Man on it and he was crouched he's doing his classic crawling pose and then you saw the packs of cards that had Wolverine one had Captain America one had Spider-Man 
I'm vaguely remembering them now. Like I remember I had a comic book store. It was like a more, more like a baseball card store, but they sold those cards too. And I remember some of them you know, had holograms on them and the whole nine yards. I must have them, some that I bought in my basement somewhere. I have to dig it out. They're probably mixed in with a million other things because I, on the other hand, was obsessed with the Batman cards from the Batman movie in 89 and oh, yeah. in 92. Obsessed with those cards. And I definitely have the Marvel cards with I have some reflective ones that I have like in the little plastic sleeves like you would put a baseball card in. Oh yeah, because ho- at the holograms, that was the big thing, right? Is like you're in search of a hologram card in all of this. And because not only would you get the card with your favorite character and on the back it had so many awesome stats because it would give you their first appearance, it would give you their height and their weight, it would tell you their powers, it would tell you their accessories and everything that they used in their fight against crime or fight for crime because <laughs> villains have their own cards as well. I found it really, really great that you could actually learn about comics history because they had actual cards that were significant issues in Marvel Comics history. And that's how I found out, okay, what's Wolverine's first appearance? Okay, there it is, the Incredible Hulk 181. And now you have that knowledge to take with you. Not that you're ever going to get your hands on that book, but now you know. And so this first issue of Wizard, in addition to the comic book price guide, actually has a cards price guide. Really? Yes, and it would actually tell you the prices. Now, you would walk into a baseball card store back in the day. They would have these cards like that were rare. I don't know where they, they were getting their pricing, but they definitely had like in glass cases. Oh yeah, you know, you can get this. And of course, the number one thing they had were holograms. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, the most valuable card as of September 1991 in this issue of Wizard was the Silver Surf for a hologram, it was worth seven dollars. Wow. And I actually, what I have done for myself, because I, I have a complete set of these cards. Do you really? Yes, I love them. They are probably the most nostalgic thing to me of my childhood. If you put a pack of those cards in my hand, I'm eight years old again. So much so that I collected as many as I could. And then with all my doubles for series one through three, I actually created framed artwork of all the cards. And then I have each of the different packs variations plus a dual page spread that shows Marvel Universe Series 1 trading cards on it in the middle and then I have an actual Silver Surfer hologram framed in there with it all. That is like a true symbol of like the artistic nature of comic books for me. It was such a big deal. But the other thing that is very interesting in this is that there was also Marvel Universe Series 2 trading cards had just come out so they didn't have a value per card just yet, but instead was listings of each card and then which artist drew the cards. And to me, that's like a piece of knowledge that you don't get. They don't sign the cards. It doesn't say on the back. You know, It gives you so much information. It doesn't tell you who drew what. But you have people like Eric Larson and John Romita Jr. and Mark Bagley and Jim Lee. and All these major artists were contributing art to the cards as well. That was a really cool feature that you won't see again, because by the next issue, they have a price. I do now remember that I did buy a couple of Marvel cards. I can't tell you what year. I have to find them. They're somewhere in my basement. But I used to buy these acrylic cases for them with that had four screws on four corners. And you would lay the card perfectly in the middle, put the acrylic over it, and screw it together. And I definitely have some hologram cards that are in those acrylics. 
Oof, I gotta look. They got they could be either my parents' house or my own basement somewhere. Lord only knows, but I definitely had something. I may have had that silver server. That's awesome. Yeah, because that that's where they were like just seen as these super valuable objects. Can you believe it? It's a hologram. Even like upper deck cards. The only reason I ever bought like the one or two packs that I ever did of upper deck baseball cards was because they had the upper deck logo in a hologram. Mm-hmm. That was the big draw. It's like oh, it's a basic card, but it has a hologram on it every card oh that's kind of exciting for a kid of that age it makes it seem more valuable instantly shiny now you, you've given me some homework that i gotta go find these cards yeah I definitely, definitely dig them out man <laughs> one thing i have to mention though this issue taught me that i was totally unaware of as we close out this segment but in the wizards top 10 section of the magazine the number one comic at the time was x-force number one by artist and writer rob liefeld so, for those who don't know, X-Force number one was also a huge selling comic. So, it outsold Spider-Man number one. So, first Todd was the biggest selling comic book in history. Then Rob had X-Force number one. And at this time, it was the biggest, hottest book in the country, as this said. And it was polybagged, and it came with a trading card inside. And what it tells us here is something that I don't know that anybody was aware of this. I don't know where it was explained, because when you picked up a pack of cards they're not telling you what you need to get a full set other than the checklist card and so what it says is this comic book has been very well received of the five different trading cards available the cable card is the most popular collecting the set of cards creates a whole nother dimension to this comic in order to create a complete set of marvel trading cards series two you will need these five extra cards I have never heard that before. And there is no listing on the checklist for Marvel Series 2 regarding that. So I don't know if they just fabricated that. Like, that's just something that somebody over at Marvel told them. That, oh yeah, make sure you mention that these are part of the Marvel Series 2. Because they're not. They're a different style and everything. So I, I was very confused by that statement. But now I almost feel like, oh, well, now I have to go and get those. Buy a few more copies. I know they're cheap. Just take a look at the price guy next month i guess we'll find out how much x-force number one is worth these days oh yeah it's probably now worth quite a bit because of deadpool 2 and you know the portrayal of cable in that movie and so on and so forth so it actually might be worth something at this point time to move on to another segment that's right sky gardeners gimmicks a go-go how bizarre There's a single page write-up in this issue of Wizard called Collecting Comics in the 90s. It's actually uncredited, so I do not know who put all this together. But one of the things that it brings up is different ways that you can collect comics, you know, like character collecting. So you want to collect every issue of a comic featuring your favorite character or artist collecting. So you want to get every book that this particular artist ever drew, whether or not it's a main series they were on or is a fill-in issue here, a fill-in issue there. Uh, there's writer collecting, same concept. Then the last thing it talks about here is creative marketing is what they call it. Otherwise known as how do you you hype up the comic book visually to sell all these copies as mentioned by todd mcfarlane earlier which says 
Creative marketing has also taken roots in the comic book industry. Examples of these are bagging comics, which was really intended basically to protect the comic while shipping, inserting trading cards, and multiple covers for one issue. Variations in comics that are also very collect-worthy are test logos, which had very limited distribution, newsstand versus direct copies, with or without UPC, short for Universal Product Code, limited productions, and finally changing colors on covers for second prints. Basically, all of this had to do with Spider-Man number one. I mean, everything they're talking about here. Spider-Man number one and X-Force is what they're referring to. They go on, these creative processes cannot work alone. They must be combined with elements mentioned earlier that attract collectors to begin with. Just putting a special cover on a piece of junk will not work. (laughs) Over the next six months, the comic book industry will grow tremendously. There will be major factors when combined, which will create a huge market. Anyway, I just find that hilarious. You can't just slap a fancy cover on a piece of junk. (laughs) And Michael, I know in your collection, you said there's plenty of those you might not even know, right? You've never cracked the book. You just like the cover. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to lie. I have a stack of like X-Men books and Fantastic Four that I've never opened the cover just because they're so beautiful. I just left them in the bags and boards and said, eh, who knows? It would be worth something to Usually not, but who cares? I've also taken some, you know, to conventions, got them signed, and put them in, like, picture frames and mounted them on the walls. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's a great way to do it. But yeah, it's interesting because, as we know, the 90s were 100% the era of the gimmick cover. And, you know, it started, again, with Spider-Man number one, the beginning of the decade. It just got more and more creative, if you want to say, or ridiculous. So that's one of the fun things that, in this particular segment, we're going to actually be trapped. Tracking that as the issues go on, we're going to find what cover variations they're going to be promoting as something you're really going to want to find. So look forward to that. In our next segment, we're going to play Who's Who. ask each other 10 questions to try to solve the mystery of which character is on our mind. All right, you ask me first. Okay, Michael. So, the most important of all questions. Is this a character who is found in the pages published by one of the big three? Is it Marvel? Is it DC or Image? It is in one of the big three. And are we talking about a male character? No. Okay female character is it a female character in the dc universe no is it a female character who ever headlined her own book no is it a character who is part of a team yes is it a character who is a member of the fantastic four yes <laughs> Could it be Sue Storm, the Invisible Woman? It is. You did that in about seven questions. It's pretty good. I thought you were going to throw me a curveball. Like, no, it's it's Sharon Ventura, that Miss <laughs> Marvel. Oh, no. It, they had all sorts of women that filled in from time to time. You know, and Johnny Storm was together with Crystal. They, they've had a few substitutes over the years. Even She-Hulk, obviously, one of my personal favorites. I had a great issue back in the day with her punching the thing through a wall of a bar. She had replaced. 
embraced him and he was feeling all sad for himself and she's <laughs> trying to knock him back to his senses so they had this big brawl. The reason why I thought of Invisible Woman is, so I collect the Marvel and DC Eagle Moss chess sets and they're really, really unique and I, I've actually built the chess set that is Marvel characters versus DC characters, all heroes, and I am currently building a chess board for them because I have like this Batman one, but I want to make my own chessboard, and I'm I'm uh, doing a couple cool projects with epoxy with it. And wow. my golden goose or my holy grail is the extremely rare Invisible Woman Queen chess piece. And it's like every once in a while it pops up on eBay, but it's in England. It's like fifty dollars plus like thirty dollars shipping. And I'm like, do I want to spend seventy dollars on like a tiny little chess piece, or do I want to see what happens? And that, and I just happened to think about that. We were talking about the baseball cards. Like, Is she translucent? No, she's not. And it's like a lead piece, and it's really cool looking, but it's not any translucent at all. It's classic black and blue costume or blue and black costume. And uh, she's like standing on a queen podium, and that's about it. Yeah, that was always my disappointment back in the day with the Toy Biz Invisible Woman figure from the Marvel superhero line and she came with like a little platform that launched her that was invisible mm-hmm. but she didn't turn invisible at all you know and i knew they had made an ice man who was translucent yeah. i'm like you should have made at least a variant of sue storm that could actually transform somehow or just look cool in an invisible form so okay so now i'll ask my 10 questions so we'll start off with the basic one is this character in the big three of marvel dc or image no At this time, no, if we're talking about the 90s. Hmm, okay. Is this character male or female? Male. Is this character earthbound? Yes. Okay. Not exclusively, but operates primarily on Earth. Okay. So does this character travel to other galaxies? Yes. Was this character ever an athlete prior to being a hero? Not officially. Not in any major capacity. Athletic skill, yes, but not a pro athlete or anything like that. Was there a movie about this character? I wish. (laughs) No such luck. Many rumors, but none that have come around. I I will give you a hint in that it was rumored to be a project that was in development by Robert Rodriguez. Is this character American? Yes. I'm not getting any closer. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know. This is really hard. Is this character some sort of astronaut? No. I have no idea. My, my, my two guesses, like Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon. Ah, uh, not that old. No, I'm just talking about Madman by Mike Allred. Who remembers that? He's fantastic. I love me some Madman. Mike Allred, he creates some very fun stories. and Yeah, but it was a Dark Horse comic initially. Oh, wow. Being published really independently by Mike Allred, but also like Image has made some collections and produced them. But, but yeah, I just, I love the Madman character. He's one of those, yeah, indie characters that kind of took off in a bigger way. It doesn't ring a bell, but 
doesn't mean I didn't hear of it at some point. Basically, like, Madman's probably, next to Spider-Man, my favorite comic book character, and I have action figures, I have all the trades, Madman, Gargantua, which is this giant hardbound volume of all the major comics, and then, like, spinoffs like the Atomics and all the stuff that he's done. I even have a prototype Madman wall clock that was never officially produced. I got it on eBay years ago from this company that submitted it, and then they just said, oh, we're not going to produce it. So I was like, oh, sweet. <laughs> And I also have a movie-sized poster of Madman, but it's painted by Alex Ross. Like, it's like a full-on, like, multi-sheet, like, old-style movie poster. Really? Uh, that was the cover of the first Madman comic I ever bought. Anyway, yeah, so i super huge fan. So he's kind of always on my brain. i even even written a song about Madman called Snap City Love Song. Just talks about him and his girlfriend, Joe, and all they do together, so... <laughs> One of these days, I will officially record it and send it to Mike Allred. I told him that when I met him at Phoenix Comic Con years ago. I just still have not done it. So I got to get around to it. (laughs) That's pretty funny. And that brings us to our final segment. We're going to let you have it. Whatever's on our mind. That's right. It's What the? Do you have the time to listen to me whine? About nothing and everything all at once. I am one of those. Yeah, so this is really just an opportunity for us to step out of the 90s, if we prefer, out of the wizard pages, just whatever's been on our mind in reference to comic books. It could be a particular series we're reading, it could just be a thought on the industry in general, and I will say for me, mine's pretty quick actually, but I recently signed up for Comixology Unlimited. I had had an account for a while and bought some collections here and there, reading. It just became so much easier to read because I often have a one-year-old in my arms that I have to take care of. And so if I could bust out my phone and read something, I will. And one of the comics that I read recently, I'm a big fan of the Netflix series Glow, and I was a big fan of Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling in the 80s growing up. So I just, I was fascinated by all of that. I even recently bought a t-shirt directly from Godiva, who was one of my favorite wrestling heels back in the day. And she sent me an autograph. I actually have written some articles for other sites about Glow that she has commented on, so that was super exciting. But anyway, I I really enjoy the Glow series, even though it's not like 100% accurate to what the actual wrestling show was back in the day. But it's so entertaining, and Alison Brie is awesome, all the supporting characters. And there was a Glow comic book that they've released came out after season two and it is in my opinion the best adaptation of like a show or a movie to a comic book in a continuing universe just the writing on it is so distinct like each character is written just like they are on the show and yet they're having all these adventures that are taking place in between seasons and it expands my enjoyment of the series as a whole so I was just blown away because I feel like you know what I 
I do on my other podcast, Sequel Quest, is I'm always looking for the next adventure. You know, I'm always trying to imagine what it would be. And here I feel like they've struck that perfect chord where the art is right on par with the characters, so the likenesses are there, but it's more cartoony and it's just a lot of fun. So if you're a fan of Glow on Netflix, you will very much enjoy the same uh, raucous energy and attitude in the comic book form. I haven't read that comic, but that's pretty neat. I do like the show. I'm a little bit behind, but I I loved the first season. I started the second season, but then I too had toddlers in tow and couldn't watch it all the time, so I had to fell behind. But it's a good show, and I do enjoy it. So my what the for this week is something that's a pretty big deal in comics right now is the Superman number 18, The Truth, where Superman basically gives up the identity of Clark Kent and reveals that Clark Kent is Superman and is no longer going to be Clark Kent anymore. He's just going to be Kal-El slash Superman. I I picked up the issue the other day. I haven't read it yet. I'm almost kind of like reluctant to read it because I don't know how I fully feel about it. I understand what Brian Michael Bendis is doing because in 2019 you know a a big ideology of people is own your truth and know your truth and and don't be afraid to share your truth and if superman stands for truth and justice why would he keep this lie of being clark kent but if you've read comics as long as i have especially a lot of people that are true superman traditionalists the idea of clark kent that's who he is not just the superman character and it's it's really interesting and um i want to read it but i'm also like a little terrified to read it i I don't know why but you know that's what's been on my mind and it's you know okay they kill off characters all the time it's not a big deal but for superman to say that he's not gonna be clark kent anymore that's a little bit different how can he be not clark kent well yeah what does he do the rest of his day yeah exactly he's just literally gonna be superman 24 7 now or does he just get to like is he gonna have casual kryptonian wear that he just (laughs) he's like well i'm not on the job right now so i don't have my cape on plus it just sounds like dc is many years too late on spider-man and civil war yeah he revealed his identity years ago so superman's finally got the guts to do it that's yeah that should be a really interesting way to see where that goes and of course the return of clark kent will be imminent right (laughs) oh yeah without a doubt you know once the next artist or writer jumps in the book it's going to be like oh yeah we're going to bring back clark kent this is how we're going to do it you know comics (laughs) well as we mentioned before we have our minifiguresmarket.com giveaway, and we promise you a chance to win a set of custom Lego minifigures from minifiguresmarket.com. And Michael, I know that you in particular are a fan of minifigures, is that right? Put it this way. When I was a kid, I was a huge Lego person, and I used to make vehicles or whatever that was like a version of the Batmobile or whatever, but you could never get a Batman Lego figure, or you couldn't get a Spider-Man or a Captain America. Now, they are making these figures real-looking and so amazing that this company does some really cool stuff, and it's 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 kind of sparked my excitement back into Legos, and I started buying new stuff, and I'm ordering different versions of Batman or different versions of, you know, the different characters that are out there that this company is creating, so I, I find that really, really cool, and I'm, and I'm excited that we're a part of it, so. Yeah, they are wonderful, again, if whether it's for you to add to your shelf, I'm a big fan of the 
band Kiss, so I have my four-piece Kiss set. I have a, a Mogwai and a Gremlin, Gizmo and Stripe on my shelf as well, so they're they're exciting. Whatever your pop culture favorite is, you're going to find it over there at minifiguresmarket.com. But for you, up for grabs, we have a colossal nine-piece Avengers figure set available to one lucky listener, and so there's going to be two ways for you to enter our drawing. So for example, through social media, if you're following us on Twitter at Wizards Comics, when we post about the giveaway, just retweet that, and then why don't you also give us a comment about your favorite segment from the show so far. So retweet, leave a comment there with that. Or, if you're not doing the social media thing, you can go to your podcast hub of choice, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Podbean, any other, and leave us a five-star rating and review where available. Take a screen grab and then just send it our way at wizardscomicspod at gmail.com. Or do both get yourself two entries improve your chance at winning this nine piece avengers lego minifigures set from minifiguresmarket.com so good luck to everybody and hey we didn't even ask you to call it to vote on whether or not to kill off an annoying sidekick it's a pretty sweet deal <laughs> so with that as we close here the one thing we wanted to make you aware of is the segments we've gone through this episode that's just the tip of the iceberg we actually have several others that will be moving in and out as it's appropriate to each issue. But Wizard was always a very interactive type of magazine, and they were very proud of that fact, that they would take suggestions from the readers as to what they wanted to see, what they wanted to be able to talk about. And as we know, those features came and went. So if you have something that you feel like you would like us to focus on on a future episode, contact us and let us know which segment, and if you want to give it its own name and give us a basic outline of how it should run, we'd be happy to give it a test drive and uh, have a little bit more fun there because some of these segments they're just off the top of our head maybe they're fun maybe they're not maybe you want to see us stitch it you know and then you can put your own in there so we certainly want you to participate with us whether you're going to come on as a guest in the future or just write in and let us know also be sure that you are subscribing to the Retro Network podcast feed because that is exclusively where you will find Wizards the podcast guide to comics and in addition you will get other shows I've mentioned a couple times uh, my other podcast, Sequel Quest, where we create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Also on the network, they have the Retro Network podcast. You'll have a, a nice dose of nostalgia on a regular basis. And with that, until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.